0: Great. Well, it's a great pleasure to have a chance to uh, talk to you today. I want to thank the uh, organizers for the opportunity to, uh, to be here. And we're going to talk about the concept of precision, precision epigenetic therapy for B-cell lymphomas. So this is my uh, disclosures, and this is the summary of the talk. We'll introduce epigenetics, the germinal center reaction and thymogenesis, the epigenetic basis of lymphomas, and then get to precision epigenetic therapy. So um, I think it's a useful paradigm to think of the genome and epigenome as the uh, computer hardware and computer software uh, paradigm. Um, Just like computer software, the epigenetic uh, programming in our cells is um, a series of software-like programs that can be written and erased as cells need to differentiate or respond to external stimuli and provide cells with a a tremendous capacity to adapt to uh, various environmental conditions. And um, it's thanks to the genome that our cells are able to adopt all the hundreds of different, or different phenotypes and functions that they have. Um, even though every cell in our bodies has the same genome, the reason why they can behave in all these incredible ways is because they load different software programs onto their genome that confer these various phenotypes. All cell phenotypes are dependent on their software programming. It is the software programming or epigenome that determines every cell phenotype, including all tumors. And so if you want to know what the source code is for how these tumors behave, you need to go to the epigenome and see what's going on, and then you have your answer. The problem is that we don't really know very much about the epigenome. I would say that we're at the very early dawn of starting to know that it exists and beginning to understand what some of the components are and uh, components that you may have heard of include modifications of DNA such as DNA methylation, DNA hydroxymethylation. You will also have heard of histone modifications which are post-translational modifications of uh, histone tails that um, uh, are composed of many many different covalent modifications. There are probably hundreds of these that occur in different patterns and the patterning is critical. Also, non-coding RNAs are another component of the epigenome that bind to chromatin and help to uh, organize where regulation happens. And finally, there is three-dimensional architecture also playing a critical role into how cells control gene expression. The two meters of DNA in the nucleus of every one of your cells is not randomly squeezed in like a bowl of spaghetti, but rather it's very carefully distributed into domains and organized perfectly so that it allows groups of genes to be in physical proximity to each other, talk to each other, and in this way, um, be able to work in a coordinated fashion. Because genes can't talk to each other across long distances. They have to be close together. And that is how the genome organizes. So let's go to the germinal centers. Um, Everyone here is familiar with the germinal center reaction. You know this is the uh, component of a humoral immune response that generates high affinity antibodies and is composed of initially mature B cells lodge in secondary lymphoid tissues that, in response to antigen stimulation, migrate to the interior of lymphoid follicles and undergo um, somatic mutation and rapid proliferation in order to generate high affinity immunoglobulins. And after going through rounds of division, they can interact with germinal center localized uh, T follicular helper cells, follicular dendritic cells, And these interactions lead to selection of uh, the few cells that manage to create a high-affinity antibody to ultimately become plasma cells that create high-affinity antibodies or memory B cells, whereas the vast, vast majority of these cells undergo cell death. Now, um, I should say that um, uh, what's been of interest to us um, over many years is the uh, unbelievable phenotypic changes that occur during the germinal center reaction. Cells really just become very, very different in each of the stages. And um, because all this is very rapid, it creates a very good scenario for exploring how the epigenome might encode for the different things that happen during these time frames. And this is uh, further underlined by the fact that of the uh, 150 highly recurrent mutations that occur in, uh, in germinal center derived in DLBCLs and uh, FLs, that about um, uh, 50 or 60% of all these mutations are in genes that encode for uh, proteins that modify the epigenome or that direct the epigenome, i.e. transcription factors. And so this is the dominant theme, the most common class of mutated protein in all of these uh, lymphoma subtypes. Um, now, um, uh, among these uh, genes are, uh, the most, um, among the most common are those affecting uh, KMT2D, also known as MLL2 or MLL4, uh, KRPP, AP300, ECH2, tet 2 We'll talk about all of these in a minute. Um, all of them are epigenetic modifiers. And they all play a critical role in the happy equilibrium between proteins that normally write epigenetic in- instructions or erase them. This equilibrium is critical. It confers plasticity and the ability of cells to change their epigenomes and undergo phenotypic transitions. If the balance between these, act- these writing and erasing forces is disrupted through any of these kinds of processes, mutations in these genes, then you're going to have things starting to get stuck. And that is essential to understanding how lymphomas occur. And these mutations, all of which are founder mutations that occur at the beginning or initiation of the phomogenesis, play a critical role. And I'll show you some vignettes in a second um, on how this happens before we get to the therapeutic part. So, um, interestingly, one of the major transitional points that's critical for the normal conduct of the germinal center is this interaction between T cells and B cells in the germinal center uh, through a whole raft of receptors that are collectively known as the immune synapse. And mutations in these genes that we just talked about, all of them disrupt the normal signaling that occurs between B cells and T cells in a bidirectional manner that affects both cell types. All of this is linked to a transcription factor that all of you know called BCL6, which um, acts in coordination with these various epigenetic modifiers To um, set up the uh, germinal center phenotype, and then uh, needs to be overcome when B cells are exiting the germinal center reaction. So um, let's go through a couple of short vignettes. We'll talk first about somatic mutations of P and P300. These are uh, these two proteins are histone acetyltransferases. They acetylate, that means activate uh, uh, the uh, genome, and they especially function at elements that are called enhancers. Enhancers are intergenic non-coding regions or intronic non-coding regions that uh, where the regulatory proteins assemble to control expression of genes. And CRIP is very, very important for at this stage enabling these enhancers to become activated that permit B cells to uh, wind up exiting the germinal center reaction. But in lymphomas that lack query P or have mutations of P, uh P, this simply doesn't happen. And what you have is actually is persistent repression of enhancers that are normally turned off in the germinal center reaction by BCL6, which does this through its association with one, spe- one specific histone acetylase inhibitors inhibitor that's called HDAC, sorry, one histone deacetylase called HDAC3. And so normally, this is a happy equilibrium between HDAC3 and query P, but when you lose query P, you lose the equilibrium and now everything gets apparently repressed and these enhancers can't get turned on and B cells are now stuck maintaining germinal center characteristics. They can't epigenetically rewrite their software properly. A similar thing happens with loss of TET2. Uh, TET2 is uh, the only mutation in mature B-cell lymphomas that's known to occur at the level of the hematopoietic stem cell, so it truly is the most foundry of all founder mutations. And in the absence of uh, TET2, a similar thing happens. TET2 is normally very important uh, to create 5-hydroxymethylcytosine at uh, the same sites where query P is supposed to be activating transcription. But in the absence of TET2, query P actually cannot function. So, it's a very similar hit to losing query P. Once again, you lose the equilibrium between writers and erasers. The eraser HDAC3 is now dominating. And uh, there is actually, aside from these enhancers getting stuck through HDAC3, there is a second effect, a second byproduct of tattoo that's, even, that's also deleterious, involving aberrant promoter, uh, gene promoter hypermethylation. So, now you're hitting genes at two different parts of their anatomy, both at their enhancers and at their promoters. In the case of KMT2D, this is a protein that is a a histone-methyltransferase that uh, introduces uh, histone-3-lysine-4 monomethylation, which is required, again, for gene enhancers to respond to external cues from T cells. When you have loss of KMT2D, the system again gets stuck. Enhancers get uh, uh, unable to get turned on. Um, we think this is due to the actions of BCL-6, again, but this time not in cooperation with HDAC3, but instead with a protein called LSD1, a demethylase, and possibly also with histondimethylases of the KDM5 family, still work in progress. And this leads to profound inability of B cells to respond to the critical CD40 signal that they must be able to detect in order to uh, participate in the immune synapse. Finally, there are the gain-of-function mutations of EZH2, and EZH2 is a, is a different story than these past, all these past ones we talked about. All the mutations we talked about were loss of function mutations where you lose the epigenetic modifier. Here, what you have is aberrant gain of function of the epigenetic modifier, which now becomes aberrantly active and able to uh, carry out its function, which is to trimethylate histone 3, lysine 27 at gene promoters much more efficiently than it should. Now, one thing you should know is that EZH2 is actually plays a critical role in the normal germinal center reaction and in the absence of vch2 there is in fact no germinal center so it's an essential germinal center protein and likewise it's it's an essential protein for lymphomas that arise from the germinal center but then there's the case of the subset of lymphomas that develop these mutations where now this mark is put down very efficiently and the usual erasers that are supposed to take this out just can't deal with this increased tilting towards the K27 trimethylated state. And what's interesting is that this uh, that repression, this, this, this mark doesn't actually do anything. It's just simply decorating chromatin. It's there to recruit other complexes that actually carry out that work, which is, occurs, again, in collaboration with BCL6. And then in lymphomas, you have this tilting towards the repressed configuration because the writer this time is enhanced. And you get, again, repression of immune synapse and disruption of immune surveillance. So the commonality of all these mutations is that their primary effect is an immune surveillance. That is how they function as tumor suppressors or oncogenes. They're not the classical P53-like, you know, DNA damage checkpoint type of of lesions. Um, So now we get to the part about therapy. And uh, let me first uh, define to you what I think this means. So what is precision epigenetic therapy? Uh, This is uh, treatments that hit a well-defined and specific target right, which is important specificity, which we don't really have right now almost. The target is mainly an epigenetic modifier in the lymphoma context, here's a mac to pc error. The target drives a defined epigenetic dependency in non lymphoma, so we must you know, understand that there is actual biology that makes sense there and patients can be selected based on biomarkers that indicate dependency on that particular mechanism. That is precision epigenetic therapy. That's what we have to aspire to because we don't have that right now, and we also are not very successful with these drugs. So let's go to examples. Uh, we'll talk first about CREB-P. We've mentioned uh, that CREB-P loss of function leads to dominant effects of HDAC3. There are two approaches that are being investigated that I know of at least. One was recently published by the Della Favre Group, They reasoned that if you lose query cells will become uh, highly dependent on any remaining histone acetyltransferase activity. And they showed that if you now treat these lymphoma cells with uh, drugs that target the other histone acetyltransferases, this leads to a toxic effect, which I think is interesting and may be a good way to treat these lymphomas. The approach that we have followed is targeting the opposing mechanism, HDAC3. We want the seesaw to become balanced again by hitting the opposing force, thus allowing genes to now, the remaining hats to take over, and then we have restoration of gene expression. So uh, one of the most critical sets of target genes of P that are lost in lymphomas are the MHC class II genes. And uh, we observed that if you uh, take primary human lymphomas and put them into mice, and then treat with different doses of HDAC3 inhibitor, you see very strong dose-dependent activation of MHC class II which uh, the idea would be that would restore immune surveillance. Maybe you, could get a, maybe you could use these drugs instead of immunotherapy to restore the immune system. You don't need to actually do things to the immune system beyond that, maybe. Or you could combine them. Here's another experiment testing this concept where human lymphomas are put into mice. The mice are then uh, uh, administered uh, human uh, T-cells. The T-cells are allowed to infiltrate the lymphomas. The tum- infiltrating lymphocytes are then removed and put into culture with uh, the same B-cells that have been either exposed to HDAC3 inhibitors or vehicle, and then we measure the amount of killing, and you can see that these now these tumor-educated T-cells will kill lymphomas that have been pre-exposed to uh, HDAC3 inhibitors, and you can abrogate this effect by putting on MHC class 2 and class 1 blocking antibodies. So they're doing it through a class 1 and class 2 effect which is uh, likely because there's a heterologous is probably a a tissue histocompatibility effect, uh, but it just shows you that the T cells can become reactivated. In a more syngeneic manner with a natural immune system, we used a mouse model driven by BCL6 and then um, treated mice with these lymphomas with either HDAC3 inhibitor, a PDL1 uh, checkpoint inhibitor or combination to show you a few examples of the data, you can see that both the HDAC3 inhibitor and pd one inhibitor can create uh, uh, induction of serum uh, interferon gamma, showing that T cells are becoming activated. The HDAC3 inhibitor is actually a little more efficient, but the combination is even stronger. And looking at CD8 cell infiltration to tumors shows you that both the checkpoint inhibitor and the HDAC3 inhibitor can do it, but the combination is, again, much more potent. So these uh, compounds will be coming out uh, for use in clinical trials next year. They're going through IND-enabling studies. And we intend to test this concept in patients to see if we can use precision epigenetic therapy as a form of re- immune reactivation with or without immune therapy approaches like checkpoint inhibitors. Now you'd say, okay, but we have HDAC inhibitors. Why do, why do I care about PAN- it by, by an HDAC3 inhibitor, since uh, HDAC3 is one of the many HDACs that these drugs target? Well, here's a comparison of the drugs. HDACs, uh, when the Panit HDAC inhibitors, um, H-DACs, uh, HDACs carry out many functions in cells. There are thousands of proteins regulated by lysine acetylation. Much of this is perturbed by Pan-HDIs. There's no evidence that their effect on lymphomas is through an epigenetic mechanism. The gene expression profiles are bidirectional, and uh, really there is not a single shred of evidence that they act through an epigenetic mechanism. Uh, They are very, very toxic to hematopoietic cells, other tissues. They cannot be given at doses that that, uh, create full target engagement, so we can't even see how well they would work in people because they're too toxic. And also they suppress the function of T-effector cells and so potentially antagonize any immune benefit. So really this is not a precision approach for this. But HTAC-3 inhibitors um, are better than this because HTAC-3 has only been purified as part of a single complex, which is the one that we're targeting. Uh, its effects by transcriptional profiling is almost entirely gene activation. There's no tox against the hematopoietic stem cells and it doesn't suppress T-cell effector functions. So pan-HTAC inhibitors are not epigenetic therapy And we should stop calling them that because they aren't unless someone at some point generates some data to the contrary. To me, they are not. This is not epigenetic therapy. It's some kind of cytotoxic therapy up to now. Uh, EZH2 inhibitors are also of interest. You know all about them. They're in clinical trials. Uh, The idea is to block the hyperactive EZH2, restore balance uh, to the force in that mechanism. The effect of EZH2 inhibitors are largely cytostatic. The main effect in lymphoma cells is to reduce proliferation, and induce a partial differentiation state. Eventually there is some cell death towards the end of this, but it's largely cytostatic. The effect of the mutations is more immunological than, than, uh, than, than survival, and so it's mo- probably more important at the level of gaining immune response. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of a paper that came out from uh, the Vancouver group showing that they just uh, profiled their patients to see which mutations would correlate with uh, low expression of class one and class two and found that when uh, both of those are down, the most strongly correlated mutation with those is EZH2. And in fact, uh, in the mouse models that we generated for EZH2 gain of function, we find the same thing where there is reduction in MHC class 1 expression, reduction in class 2, reduction in infiltration of CD4, CD8 cells as well. So EZH2 mutation creates cold immunological tumors, and this uh, creates an opportunity as well for using epigenetic therapy against EZH2 to restore this. Um, EZH2 inhibitors are interesting because they target both the oncogene effects of EZH2, but also those wild-type tumors that are EZH2-dependent. So it's not just for EZH2 mutant tumors. They're highly effective in the, uh, in the preclinical setting and are showing promising activity in patients. Uh, however, EZH2 mutation is not an appropriate biomarker to select patients for this therapy because many other patients will respond to. EZH2 mutation is linked to repression of antigen-presenting genes, consistent with suppression of immune surveillance, Although there is potential for combination with immunotherapy to be beneficial, several effector T-cell sets are also EZH2 dependent, and this must be studied uh, to understand exactly how to administer these drugs. My feeling is that most likely, we'll need to do sequential treatments and study very carefully how T-cells are affected. Very few people study the effect of potential drugs on T-cells, and it's actually important to do that to get a sense of whether or not any kind of immune benefit will happen. It's also not clear yet what level of target engagement, which means suppression of ECH2, is required for maximal anti anti-lymphoma effect in different types of lymphoma, which is especially relevant for DLBCL. The uh, currently, the, the greatest experience so far with these drugs is from the uh, uh, tesametostat, which is given twice a day, and it's not known what level of target engagement this actually leads to, and whether or not it's adequate for, you know, which, for what kind of tumors. That has to be investigated. Um, okay, so in the case of uh, TET2, it's a similar consideration. We, uh, we know HDAC3 is counteracting it. Uh, we have published previously that HDAC3 inhibitors become uh, very effective in TET2 loss of function lymphomas. And it's interesting to think also that perhaps combining these with drugs that are uh, inhibited in might yield further efficacy, a topic that we're investigating that could lead to another form of precision therapy for those patients. And then there's the, finally the case of KMT2D where we don't actually know exactly what to do. Uh, we have tested LSD1 inhibitors in lymphoma cells and they have no effect at all. And that's because LSD1 has multiple effects beyond just histone methylation. We've also tested KDM5 inhibitors which maybe uh, may have some effect. Um, this is our lab also with Jude Fitzgibbon in the UK. Um, these are two possible ways to, to go. We're also testing now LSD1-degrader molecules to see if that's a way to actually do this. So I'd say the jury is out on whether we have a way to, to yet target in a precision manner these lymphomas, but uh, you know, it requires more work. There are many other drugs out there of potential interest. The Denimethyltransferase inhibitors uh, do seem to be working well in, uh, in DLBCL. Um, there's a potential phase three trial that will be coming soon uh, with CC46 in combination with, uh, with Chop. And uh, in the uh, phase 2 trials, uh, we're seeing uh, uh, promising uh, efficacy in high-risk patients. There are no clinically relevant sirtuin inhibitors. Sirtuins are uh, also uh, uh, lysine deacetylases. They also affect other uh, histone modifications. Um, We have some evidence from preclinical data with three inhibitors being useful, but these are not yet really ready for prime time. BET inhibitors are, uh, are the current uh, fashion um, in, in, in epigenetics, but they are highly toxic and relatively pleiotropic in their actions. So they're, in a way, kind of reminiscent of the, a- the pan-Astac inhibitors. Their efficacy so far is, is not great, uh, but there's evidence that in combination there may be ways to actually yield very synergistic effects. So I think it's still worth exploring these drugs. pm 5 inhibitors, um, these uh, uh, inhibit uh, histone Arginine methylation, but they also inhibit uh, methylation, arginine methylation of many proteins. I'm not sure they can really be called an epigenetic therapy, but they are here. They're in the pharma clinical trials. PRMT5 is actually essential for the formation of germinal centers, um, and the drugs are very highly active in preclinical studies. Um, so I think they. I'm not sure how they work in the FOMAs, but they certainly are potentially active and worth uh, uh, watching how they do um, as they go through testing. So. That's the story that I have to tell you today. This is our laboratory. Uh, some of the work that I showed you about HDAC3 inhibitors was done by, actually by uh, a former postdoc who's here in the audience, Patricia Mondello. And um, these are our collaborators who uh, helped us with these various studies and uh, the, our funding mechanisms. And I just want to let you know that we have this, uh, f- this second translational research, uh, ACR meeting on lymphoma, coming up in June. And hopefully, all of you can attend. Thank you very much.